You're listening to Food Psych, a podcast about nutrition, eating disorders, and body image. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in health at every size. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships to food. Uh-huh. I, I, I remember I was teething, little gums bleeding. Friday evening, it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beefing. Now I'm ready for the world. Try and sink my teeth in. Hey guys, welcome to episode 76. My guest today is Dana Sturdivant, a fellow body positive dietitian and the co-founder of Be Nourished, a body positive health and wellness center in Portland, Oregon. They have, she and her business partner, Hillary Canavy, have created such an amazing space in Be Nourished, not only for individuals seeking help in the Portland area, but also for people all over the world because they have online trainings and courses for people recovering from weight and body concerns, and also for providers, for healthcare providers who are looking to integrate a more health at every size and body positive approach into their own practice. So I swear I didn't plan it this way, but I think this is a really good episode to include on the heels of the last three episodes, which really got into the ethics of recommending weight loss and why it's not really ethical to recommend weight loss as a health and wellness professional in this day and age. And I think the Be Nourished programs are a really nice resource for anyone who's looking to learn more information about changing the direction of your practice. And I'm going to include all those links in the show notes for this episode. And a couple of specific resources from them that I want to mention, Be Nourished is holding a retreat for practitioners, for health and wellness practitioners, called the Embodied Practitioner Retreat at Kripalu. It's November 6th through 9th of 2016, so that's really soon, but I'm going to put a link in the show notes because there are, I think, some last-minute reservations available, maybe very few at this point. They have continuing education credits available for that as well. And then the other thing that they are promoting promoting that I wanted to highlight for you guys is a course called the No More Waiting e-course, waiting spelled W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, waiting. So it's geared toward helping the general public become more body positive and recover from body shame. You can find out more about that on their website too. I'm going to put that link in the show notes and it starts November 28th. I also want to mention that in this episode, Dana and I talk about vegetarianism and I swear I did not plan this to come out at this time, but I recently wrote a piece for Refinery29 about considerations if you're thinking about going vegetarian. So I'm going to put that in the show notes too. And I just want to highlight that as a resource in case any anyone is listening who is at all triggered by hearing about how someone went vegetarian, I don't think it would be particularly triggering, but I never know in case, you know, someone's listening in the depths of an eating disorder where any sort of idea about how to eat might be triggering. But just know that, I mean, as the episode goes on, you'll hear more of Dana's philosophy about this and how she emphasizes choosing any sort of eating pattern from a place of body confidence and body trust, not from a place of lack or a place of shame. So we'll get into all of that in the episode very shortly. 
Just a couple of quick announcements before we do. We're sponsored today by my intuitive eating online course, which you can find at christyharrison.com slash course. It's a 13-week online course to help you make peace with food, learn to trust your body again, and learn to nourish yourself from a place of self-care, not one of self-control. You can learn more about the course and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. And finally, in lieu of my usual request to submit iTunes reviews, which are always much appreciated and I would still love you guys to do, I would rather request something else from you this week because in just a week, it will be election day in the United States if you're listening to this episode the day it comes out. And I have really tried to keep body politics and electoral politics separate on this podcast because I love you all. And I know that not everyone who listens to this is a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat like I am, but I just have found that events in this election have really made it impossible to keep those two strains of politics separated any longer. So today I'm making a political endorsement for the first time ever on this podcast. If you're an American citizen, please get out there and vote for Hillary Clinton next Tuesday. She is the only viable candidate in this election who has respect for all bodies, regardless of size, gender, ethnicity, and all the other forms of diversity. And a vote for Hillary is really a vote for the world that I'm trying to create with this podcast, a world that is accepting and inclusive of all bodies and that allows us to be free to be who we really are. And I don't want to live in the world of Hillary's opponent. I'm taking a cue from Michelle Obama, not even saying his name. I'm just going to say Hillary's opponent because I think even saying his name gives it power. And I don't want to do that because I don't want to live in his world. I think we need to push back against that world of body shame and hatred and misogyny, which is legitimized and overtly encouraged in his worldview. So in my book, the leader of the free world does not get to be someone who calls women Miss Piggy or who criticizes their weight and shape on a national stage or who brags about grabbing them by the lady parts. That is not okay. So as a way of supporting the podcast this week, please get out there and vote on November 8th for Hillary Clinton. Do everything you can. Submit an absentee ballot if you need to, but please show your support for Hillary. That will be a way of showing support for the podcast, too, because if she doesn't win, I might have to move out of the country, and that would take up a lot of my time and take time away from the podcast. So you don't want to do that. If you want the podcast to keep going, vote for Hillary. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Dana Sturdivant. I spoke with her via Skype from her home in Portland, Oregon. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So I grew up in the Midwest in the 70s, and that community wasn't very particularly health conscious. You know, I I didn't grow up in a family that thought a lot about nutrition. And I think really that was a time in our culture for many that people didn't think a lot about the quality of food that they were eating. There were back in the day of soda bottles, you know, bottles of Coke, glass bottles that you would take back to the grocery store. You know, there was always a a row of of Coca-Cola on the bottom of our refrigerator. My mom did some gardening. I remember a garden a few, a few years and we'd eat from the garden a bit. My mom cooked quite a bit. We had family meals together, but there wasn't a lot of attention to nutrition per per se. I grew up eating sugary cereals for breakfast. I know my mom, when she listens to this, she'll kind of hang her head and she really doesn't have to be embarrassed by it. I I don't have any 
any bit of shame around it. But, you know, I remember I actually had Snoopy dog bowl, like a, a my cereal bowl was like a bowl that looked like a, a dog bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, you fill the bowl with cereal and you eat it, you know? So I grew up eating Lucky Charms and Count Chocula and all the cereals that, you know, other parents might not have allowed their kids to have. But then I'd have kids coming over to my house and they'd be like, Lucky Charms! And they'd go crazy. And we had little Debbies in the cabinet and kids that weren't exposed to this a lot would would eat a lot more of them than than I would because it was something I just had. Mm-hmm. So as I got a little older, it certainly I started to become a little more conscious of food just when those thoughts about my body started to come in. But as a really young kid, that's basically what it was like. Yeah. How old were you when that consciousness started to happen? Oh, I would say, you know, I grew up playing Barbies you know, we take over the living room with Barbie. I have two sisters. So, you know, there was some consciousness about bodies from playing with Barbies. And I remember being really obsessed with her waist and wanting her clothes to fit tightly around her waist. Like a lot of the dresses and stuff I had didn't have a tight snap. It was like there was some looseness and I always thought it should be tighter. It should be really wrapped around there. Mm. So certainly some consciousness about beauty standards, playing Barbies, but probably my own awareness of my body, I would say around fourth or fifth grade. Mm. Yeah. And what happened then? I'm fortunate that I didn't grow up with a mom that was conscious about dieting. I think my mom did diet a little bit, but nothing major. So she didn't disparage her body around us. That's very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, I feel very lucky. She had her own relationship with her body, and I'm sure at times felt insecure about it, but she didn't ever project that onto us. You know, I think just kind of all those cultural messages we absorb through watching Disney and what the princess looks like and what Barbie looks like and how my body's different, and, you know, probably that awkward age of puberty. I remember, you know, the first body shaming comment I got, I think, was in sixth grade when a boy in my class called me Thunder Thighs. Oh, how does a a fifth grader, sixth grader know that? I know. I don't know. But I remember being on the playground and that was one of the first, probably one of the first body comments I, I received. And I remember, I remember laying in bed sometimes at night thinking, I'm not going to eat anything tomorrow and wanting to change the size of my body. But then I'd get up and eat. (laughs) (laughs) I never followed through. That's fortunate too. Yeah. And that's really fortunate as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember laying in bed thinking about restricting, but it just wasn't ever something that I came to. I remember sneaking food a bit at that age too. I remember being obsessed with these carnation instant breakfast bars. I don't think my parents ever said, don't eat that, or, you know, you've already had one, or I I don't remember ever getting that, but there was a sneakiness to it. I would go down and get one and eat it in my room, and then I would go down and get another one and eat it in my room. So there was some shame around it, but it was self-imposed. It wasn't, you know, my mom never said, who ate all these Mm -hmm. carnation breakfast bars? Did it sort of go along with the thoughts of restricting, like that you felt you should be restricting? And so then 
any type of snack you were having was sort of seen as bad? It may have. It may have very, you know, unconsciously. Mm -hmm. It may have been in response to that. You know, I wonder if just some of the body discomfort, you know, a changing body through puberty and some of the comments that would be there, you think would be there. I wonder if that had an impact. I also just wonder if I just maybe had some anxiety that I was trying to calm by eating. Well, it's so interesting too, what you were saying about deciding that you should restrict or lying in bed and thinking about it. It's like, how do kids get the message? You know, that's, that's sort of the power of diet culture and the, the pervasiveness of it, that like you could get this message that restricting is a way to change your body size, you know, like yeah. that, that it's just diet culture reaches people from such a young age. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't like I was thinking about calories or things, but I knew mm -hmm. that not eating would be the way to lose weight. You know, that was the belief, right? So somehow that got ingrained in me. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, you know, now knowing what we know about health at every size and the realities of weight science, it's like, that's not the way, but that message is so pervasive. Yeah. Yeah, oftentimes I talk about how we're indoctrinated into this before we can even give informed consent. So true. That we we haven't consented to this when we start participating. And it often is the result of teasing or being made to feel bad about our size. Yeah. Yeah, there's some message through watching, you know, Miss America pageants and playing with Barbie and watching Disney movies that, you know, we just start to internalize that ideal. And somehow, through subtle and not so subtle messages, we, if I want to change the size of my body, I should not eat, you know. Mm -hmm. But thankfully, I didn't really, I, ne I never woke up the next day and followed through with the plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you think protected you from that? I'm sure having a mother who never said anything about my body, not having it modeled in my household. That's huge. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's a huge part of it. I think just the biological drive to eat. Right. <laughs> and not being a person that finds restriction particularly. I think for some it's, but it's almost like there's just maybe a genetic predisposition to it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've also heard people say that like it's pleasurable or it's sort of, you know, they stumble into it in a way that it's numbing some emotions that are coming up or it's, it's somehow like is useful in some way, not, you know, beyond just changing your body. It's like to sort of escape or numb out or deal with something that's going on emotionally at home or whatever. And that's kind of the way in sometimes for some kids, which makes sense because the biological drive to eat is so powerful that to overcome it, like the restriction has to have a lot of benefit, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a buzz with it or a hit with it or something. Yeah. Whereas I had thoughts about restricting, but then they, they probably resulted in some of that backlash eating. And I probably did more of the numbing out and the rewarding through turning to food instead of away from it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So did that become a pattern for you then, turning to food for numbing and comfort? You know, I don't remember 
doing it. I, I remember a phase in my life where I was eating those bars and kind of sneaking them, but I don't remember that being pervasive in my life. I ate with a lot of pleasure and gusto. I had friends that loved food. So, and you know, when you're 16 or 15 or 14, you, when you don't have many options for what you can do with your friends, a lot of times it's like you go to the mall and you eat regardless of hunger. And, you know, so I did probably a lot of non-hunger eating, but it wasn't in that sneaky, shamey way growing up. More just social bonding and something yeah. to do with people. Yeah. Yeah. Also so interesting. I've talked about this a lot on the podcast because so many of us have the self-consciousness come on, especially as women, when we are going through puberty. And I think it's no coincidence that for women, puberty is a time of necessary weight gain. Like you have to put on weight to be able to menstruate and to have your reproductive system functioning. And yet we're all made to feel such shame about that, you know? Yeah, it's really pathologized. Something that's very normal and natural and healthy is really pathologized. That's when parents often get concerned. That's when medical doctors often get concerned. And I remember when I did Evelyn Trebol and Elise Rush's, it was, I think it was the very first intuitive eating training they ever did for professionals. And I remember her talking about that natural weight gain during pregnancy. And I, I looked at my business partner and said, what the hell? <laughs> we not know this. Every parent should know this. Every physician should know this. And instead of, you know, having cultures that have celebrations around the time of menses and, you know, it's so there's like rituals and celebrations around this young girl becoming a woman officially. Our culture's ritual is, hello, welcome to diet culture. Yes. It, it's really just so insidious. Because it's like also women are sort of coming into their own at that time as as humans, you know, as people. It's like, you know, adolescence is a time of individuation and sort of exploring your own identity. And so to be foisted into, it's like, okay, yeah, welcome to womanhood. Now you're on a diet and you have to hate your body, you know, like rather than right. now you can figure out who you really are and what you want and, you know, the type of person you're going to be. It's like... And you also have to do this other thing that's going to take a lot of mental energy and emotional energy away from that pursuit. Yeah, it's 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 like a time in your life where your your focus shifts from from your own desires and what you want in your life to your desirability and dare I say your fuckability. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's like, of course, every adolescent wants that, right? It's like there's some biology there too, I suppose. So that makes it even more challenging. Yeah, wanting to be wanted. And I mean, there's even, I think, research that shows that young girls before this phase want, if when you ask them what they want to do, they want to be doctors and lawyers and astronauts and teachers. And when they hit this age, they're like, I want to be a model. I want to be an actress. I want to be a celebrity. I want to be famous. I think in part because we associate that being wanted and people thinking we're, we're sexy. And, you know, and it's interesting because while I think there's some, we have our own desires and our own sexuality budding at this time, we're also coming into power as young women that we aren't necessarily mature enough or ready enough to do, you know, to deal with. And, you know, 
I think there there's some discomfort with that. And I mean, I have several clients whose eating disorder started on the day they got their period. Wow. And it's like, there's some power that they come into that's like, I don't want this, you know? Yeah, like I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. And even though, you know, sometimes I think we can have these cat calls from, from men and boys in our classes and our friends' brothers, but there's a discomfort to it too. Deep down, being objectified doesn't feel good. No. So there's this desire to have that validation. And that's so much where we get our worthiness. And yet, it's also really scary. And you know, we don't, I don't think we live in a culture that talks about female sexuality, the way it needs to be talked about. You know, what we tell boys is it's natural and you just have this drive. And we tell girls, you just, you know, don't get pregnant and be a virgin as long as you can instead of norming their own desires and that there's something in it for them, right? And the sex act. And so it's, yeah, it's really, it's really complicated. I remember Anita Johnston wrote a little bit about that and eating in the light of the moon. And I think in Carolyn Knapp's book, Appetite, she also talks about this phase. Yeah, that's those are good resources to check out. Yeah, they're both some of my favorites. And I actually wrote a an article that was featured in the Huffington Post called The Not-So-Sexy Origins of Body Shame. And I, I quote some pieces from those books and really talk about this very thing, how the entrance into reproductive life is, is a high-risk time for young women. And if you, you were at the conference, the meta conference, when maybe heard Margot Main say that oh, yes. the entryway into reproductive life and the exit from reproductive life seem to be the highest risk times for women and eating disorders. Yeah, because this sense of desirability is either coming on or sort of being taken away from us and wanting to negotiate that and also having the, the body changes that go along with that. Like the thing that I loved that sort of stuck out for me the most in in that talk was the life preserver metaphor. I quote that a lot to my clients where she made this analogy to, you know, the weight that you gain around your middle in menopause is your life preserver because actually your estrogen level goes down and having more fat on your body helps preserve your estrogen so that you're not getting the hot flashes and the sort of negative effects of menopause as strongly if you do gain the weight. So it's your body's way of protecting you and preserving life. And yet so many women fight against it and, you know, hate it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is, this is your body's way of protecting you just in the way that, you know, weight gain and puberty also is your body's way of protecting you and sort of ushering you into reproductive life. And yeah, we have so many qualms about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, once again, like normal, natural, healthy weight gain is pathologized. Right. And so interesting too, that, you know, on this kind of metaphorical level, the body that is prized in society by the thin ideal is a prepubescent woman's body, right? It's like, that's what a young girl before going through puberty tends to look like, not someone who has gained the necessary weight to actually have entered into reproductive life. Right. Yeah, it's like, the, and you're just getting my feminist, <laughs> getting up on my feminist platform here, but I'm, I'm breathing. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I love it. I think this this kind of discourse is so essential too, especially I mean I have I have male listeners as well, but I think this really resonates with a lot of women who have struggled with body image issues because it's it's not a personal issue. It's a societal issue. It's, you know, a problem that we all have because of patriarchy and diet culture and you know, I think sometimes realizing that really helps people feel a lot less shame about their own struggles, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And if patriarchy affects men, mm-hmm. feminism has benefits for men. Absolutely. And men can internalize that thin ideal too. And increasingly, I think with men's magazines, the way that men are portrayed is, you know, instilling that thin ideal and the sort of thin but muscular ideal too. Yeah. Yeah. It's like lean. They're, they're focused on leanness and six pack abs and women are focused on thinness, you know? Yeah. I think diet culture, because, you know, there's pros and cons to the rise of social media, but one of the benefits is that the body positive movement, the fat acceptance movement is gaining momentum because of social media. And now the diet industry is panicking because more and more women are saying, no, I'm not going to participate in this. And so they're seeing men as an untapped market. That is interesting. I have not actually thought about it in that way, but that makes so much sense from a capitalist perspective, you know. Let's get the boys on board too. Right. Yeah. Untapped potential. And and then we live in this healthist culture too, that so much pursuit of thinness is about being healthy and families really buy into that idea that we have to be healthy and eat healthy and be a healthy weight. And so thinness oftentimes is, is rooted in, you know, this belief that you can tell what a person's health is by looking at them. Right. Which is absolutely not true, but it's the diet industry has done a really good job of making that association very prominent. Yeah. You live in a culture right now that believes our health is the be all and end all to our existence. And it's a moral obligation. And if we're not pursuing health, then we've somehow failed as a human being, which is why we have so much orthorexia now. And even, you know, why orthorexia is being debated in the medical community, because not everyone sees it as a bad thing. Right. Yeah, I've actually read fellow dietitians posting on Facebook and stuff saying, well, some orthorexia is actually a good thing because we have a, quote, obesity epidemic in this country and people need to, quote, get healthier. And that just makes so many assumptions that are not true. Like, you know, that the obesity epidemic is a thing, which it's not, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that being larger bodied is associated or is, you know, the cause of worse health, which it's not. And that orthorexia could ever be a good thing because the definition of it is an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. So yeah, any level of unhealthy obsession is not actually a good thing. Right. Yeah. It's like, how do we raise competent eaters, not healthy ones, you know? And right now there's a lot of pressure on parents to raise healthy eaters. And so, you know, healthy eaters are different. It's different to be a healthy eater and a competent eater. You want your kids to be competent eaters. We want our kids to be able to navigate the world of food and not just be toeing the line and then going off to college and not knowing how to self-regulate because you've always had the, the control. 
Right. Right. It was like how you were saying you had all these sugary cereals and they weren't actually that big a deal to you. And then people would come over and be like, woohoo, lucky charms and kind of go crazy, which is a story that I've heard a lot from people who were restricted of fun foods at home, you know, growing up. It's like the the friend's house where there was a candy drawer or where there were sugary cereals was like the house you wanted to be at and you would just spend the whole time you know, eating those things. Absolutely. Which is like, that's what the world is when you go out and try to self-regulate. You know, the world can sort of become like the friend's house with the sugary cereals and you can feel very out of control and unmoored if you've never had to navigate your relationship with those foods. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I talk about like when you do intuitive eating, you're not on a plan, you're not following anything. So when you go on vacation, there's nothing to fall off of. There's no mm-hmm. such there's no such thing as cheating or a bad day or a cheat day or you know, so when I go on vacation, I make my decisions about what I'm gonna eat the same way I do when I'm home. That's amazing. That's a great way to put it. Cause yeah, it's like everything is on the table always. So you're not like, there's no binge restrict cycle. There's no off plan. It's just eating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously when you're traveling, there's a bit more probably eating out because you're Mm -hmm. traveling. You know, I look at the menu the same way I do when I'm home, what sounds good, what looks good, how hungry am I? Sometimes when people have the reins and so tight, you know, and then they go on vacation, it's like losing the reins, <laughs> you know, switch. And then right. <laughs> I'll get back on my plan on January 2nd. <laughs> Never the first because that's still the holiday, right? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you always had that intuitive approach to food or did things go awry for you at some point in like adolescence or college? No, I don't think I always, I think it's shifted over time. You know, I probably ate a lot in, at least in high school and early college based on time, you know, it's time to eat. It didn't really have anything to do with hunger, probably. I probably ate like most people. I ordered my food or I plated my food and I, you know, stopped eating when it was gone, not because my body was telling me. I was done. So I think a lot of that was related to how a lot of people eat, which is, oh, it's time to eat. It's lunchtime. It's dinner time. And, oh, yeah, I got the burger and fries and, oh, it's gone. I'm I'm done, you know, Mm -hmm. having the body not be even part of it. Like what sounds good, I don't think I really, I mean, on some level, I probably did think about that, but not the way, not in the same way that I think about it now. Yeah. So your sense of connection to the pleasure of eating was not as strong. I mean, I ate things that I, I liked and I thought tasted good, but it was that it was, yeah, I just don't think I gave it much thought. You know, I think I ate a lot of fast food in early college. I just remember getting out of class and going through Burger King drive through a lot. Mm. Yeah. Just like get it done. Yeah, like, and it was cheap, and I was on my way home, and I could just pop through the drive through and then eat it. I probably ate some of it in the car and some of it when I got home. And, and really, I remember really liking, it was Burger King back in the day. I remember really liking Burger King. 
but I don't, and you know, sometimes probably it was like whatever my mom had, I went, I went to a community college, so it was probably sometimes a sandwich or something that my mom had made. I was obsessed with roast beef sandwiches with mustard for a period of time, in addition to my Whoppers and <laughs> things <laughs> like that. So pleasure was definitely a guide, but, but at the same time, I just didn't even think about what I ate. I, there was no, like, I shouldn't be eating this, or maybe I should have a salad. You know, I didn't just didn't have, mm-hmm. I didn't think about nutrition. I completely identify with that. I used to be very out of touch. I mean, I, I definitely ate things I liked, but I was not savoring them or particularly attuned to the pleasure of eating. I just would kind of eat whatever, whenever. And I think I was, I was attuned to hunger to some degree, but it was also like, oh, get home from school and eat because it's like snack time. That's just what you do. Yep. Not necessarily thinking. And sometimes I remember sometimes having like three bowls of cereal or something because I would be like, oh, I eat a bowl of cereal after school and then one wouldn't fill me up. So I'd just keep going back for more rather than thinking ahead and being like, oh, I'm really hungry. So maybe I should have more of a meal right now or something like that, you know? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That, yeah, there was definitely no mindfulness when I ate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I probably ate in the car if I picked it up and then, you know, ate in front of the TV. I probably had a little bit of pleasure in the first few bites and then it was, my mind was elsewhere. So when did you get the idea to study nutrition? Yeah, so this is where it's happened. So I went to a community college and just really had no awareness. And then I met a friend. I, I became friends with somebody who's probably one of the brightest human beings I've ever met. And I'll probably tell him to listen to this. But I met this this guy that was became a really good friend of mine. And he was a vegetarian. And he cared about where his food came from. And I'd never met anyone who did that. I'd, maybe I'd met people who were dieting. But this was not about dieting. This was, you know, this was about thinking about how our food choices impact the planet, ethical treatment of animals, things like that. You know, it wasn't health, you know, what was going to be healthier for him. And he just was such a bright human being that I was very intrigued by it. And then I think I read, which I would never recommend probably this book now. (laughs) It was a John Robbins book that diet for a new America or something. It was like a, the guy Baskin and Robbins guy. And the thing that really blew me away was the environmental aspects of how we produce meat in this culture and how much water it takes to produce a pound of beef and things like that, that I read. And I became a vegetarian and it was the time I became a vegetarian around the time I'm no longer a vegetarian, but I became a vegetarian around the time where I needed to start to pick a major Uh. because I was about done with my associate's degree. And so I had to do a science elective and I thought, let me take a nutrition course. And at the same time I started this general elective nutrition course, I started working at a health food store, which really dates me because that's what we used to call them back in the (laughs) 90s. I worked at a health food store in Miami. I don't think even Whole Foods existed, or if they did, they were only in Texas. And I was in this health food store that was a pretty big health food store at the time, which is probably the size of what a little health food store is today. And I started working there. I worked in the deli a lot and making food and 
And so that dovetailed with this nutrition class. And I, I really liked it. I really was fascinated by the field of nutrition. And, and so that's how, and the school I was going to go to in Southern Illinois had a nutrition program. And I thought, great, I'm going to declare nutrition as my major. Hmm. That's cool. So you came to it from sort of a place of ethics more so than. Yeah. Yeah. Probably ethics and health, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about how I took care of my body and how I took care of, of the environment. And I love that you phrase it that way too, because that is like such a key shift to me in thinking about nutrition is that, you know, you can think of it, I always say like self-care, not self-control, because Mm -hmm. you can think of it as self-care and make choices based on sound nutrition principles to care for your body and make you feel good. And that's great. Or you can do it from a place of self-control and be following rigid rules and fad diets and, you know, stuff that doesn't actually help you. And that's not good. (laughs) You know, it doesn't feel good. Yeah. And that one you just talked about is rooted in shame. There's no depth to that. Like my path was rooted in core values. It all of a sudden became really important to me to think about this stuff. This is so, I think this is such a good topic to delve into more because I feel like sometimes for people in recovery from eating disorders or who are learning to sort of loosen the reins on their relationship with food, it's hard to incorporate ethics and decisions about, you know, animal welfare or how to treat the planet without getting wrapped up in that orthorexia type of thinking. So I'm curious mm-hmm. if you have sort of thoughts or tips on on how people can kind of navigate that for themselves. Yeah. My business partner often says like change rooted in shame doesn't stick. And so often diet culture is very shaming and healthist culture is very shaming. And, and so, you know, a lot of times I still feel like I'm finessing this language in terms of my work, but one way I talk about it is, you know, your decisions are coming from a rooted connected place when there's no, look at me, mm-hmm. look at what I just did. There's no puffed up sense of self when it's coming from a place of our own grounding, Mm -hmm. right? There's no, like if I choose to eat a salad for dinner, say, versus having fish and chips, I don't sit in the restaurant and go, oh, look at me. I just made the really good decision, right? Right. Or Instagram it and be like, look at my healthy meal. Yeah. I'm not driving home like, oh, I was so good. That was so good of me to, you know, it might feel good. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's not like there's no look at me and I'm not stewing about it. And the opposite's true. If I decide to have the fish and chips instead of the salad, I'm not like, oh, you know, did anyone see me do that? You know, I eat the fish and chips and I'm like, yeah, I like fish and chips, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, I think there's not this puffed up sense of self. It's There's no martyrdom complex around it. You know, I don't walk in the room. Of course, when I was first a vegetarian, when I was, you know, I was probably 19 or 20, you know, of course I was like, look at me, I'm a vegetarian and there's nothing vegetarian on this menu. And I was obnoxious, (laughs) but you know, that's partly being 19, I imagine, but you know, it's not something 
that lasted very long. You know, to me, it's, there's no, like when it's, our change isn't rooted in shame. We don't talk about it. We're not preoccupied by it. And, you know, I often remind my clients when their friends are talking a lot about their diets with them is that they're feeling restricted. And of course, they're more preoccupied when they're feeling restricted. And so they're going to talk about it more. But I think when it's not rooted in shame, it's not a big deal. We don't make it a big deal. We're not on a pulpit preaching, eat this versus that. You know, it's just, it's what we do. It's, it's, it's our own individual thing. There's nothing to preach. It's our decision. That's a great way to look at it. Thank you. Because yeah, I think that sense of, is it coming from a place of shame or is it coming from a place of groundedness makes all the difference. Yeah. And there's this, you know, sometimes I use this idea of standing our ground, which comes from Brene Brown's work, mm-hmm. which is don't shrink, don't puff up, stand your sacred ground. And there's a way we stand our ground. We don't shape shift when our decisions to eat this versus that are rooted in our core values and not being used to puff up our sense of worthiness. So say we have a mom that has been honest about our weight and tends to food police us when we eat with them. We may find ourselves, you know, I've talked to clients about, so you're going out to eat with her and you're looking at the menu and you're like, oh, that salad sounds really good. And then you're like, shit, I don't want to eat the salad because she's going to be happy. (laughs) Right. I'm not going to give her the satisfaction of me eating the salad. So they order something that they know will piss their mom off. And the opposite can be true where we can go out with friends and, you know, we're working on this intuitive eating thing and we look at the menu and we're like, I'm ordering that, that burger sounds amazing. And then all of your friends order and they all order salads. And then the waiter comes to you. Are you going to shape shift and join? So you have a sense of belonging by ordering the salad. Are you going to stand your ground and get your burger and not apologize for eating it? We don't have to make comments. Oh, you know, I had a really light lunch. (laughs) Right. We don't have to make any excuses. We ordered the burger and we eat with pleasure and gusto, right? So there's this idea of shrinking back and puffing up and we don't shape shift. We stand our ground. And if our mom comments, say, mom, I'm not trying to be good. This is what I wanted. I love that. That's really powerful way to think about it. And Brene Brown's work is so useful for all of this because it's like shame seems to be for so many people, the root of problems with eating, you know, issues with their relationship with food often come from a place of shame. So to be able to navigate, I mean, Brene Brown's work is all about navigating shame and learning to respond with vulnerability and, you know, sort of, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? She has word that she always uses about navigating shame, which I can't think of. But anyway, people should definitely check it out. I'll I'll link to that in the show notes too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this question I ask my clients that might be helpful for your listeners, which is if you could eat anything right now and be guaranteed that it wouldn't affect your weight, your health, or your reputation, what do you want? Mm. Sounds good. What do you want to eat? And the reason why, you know, years ago, I used to just ask that question with just, it wouldn't affect your weight or your health, but I added, or your reputation, because I was sitting with a client who was vegan. And I asked him this question, 
without the reputation piece. I just said, if you could eat anything right now and be guaranteed that it wouldn't affect your health or your weight, what would you want? Except me. And he goes, oh, shit. And I said, what? And he goes, oh my gosh, my friends would kill me if they knew. But he said, steak. Mm. It's really interesting. He says, yeah. He says, I don't think I would ever eat it. But that's what came to my mind. And so this is what this is what adding your reputation. That's why I added reputation. When I was vegetarian, I never would have said steak. If I had it, you know, if I was somewhere and I was like, God, I really want that, I'd, I'd eat it. But it doesn't, you know, it's just not something that appeals to me. Right. And that's, I think, also a powerful aspect of being in touch with your body and your sense of pleasure and desire in, in food is that you don't have to eat anything just to prove something either. Like maybe for people who are in the early stages of eating disorder recovery or in the early stages of intuitive eating, that's a helpful practice for sure to challenge yourself with things that you think you would never eat. But like once you're feeling grounded in your own sense of what would be pleasurable and what sounds good, it's like you don't actually have to force yourself to eat anything that, that sounds good just for the sake of it. Yeah. The reputation thing, I think, is so powerful, too, in this day and age of clean eating and orthorexia, because I've heard so many people say they get the identity as the healthy person, or they have an Instagram or a blog or something that people follow that, you know, they have a reputation staked on this being a healthy person, and it really limits them and what they can eat when they go out with friends or when they appear in public or something, you know are seen to be eating something else. It's like a national scandal to talk about them eating a burger or something. Right. Headline news, right? <laughs> right. You know, we have clients here. There's a naturopathic college in Portland and we have clients that go to school there and are binging and eating compulsively because they're, they're trying to put on this false food front at school and mm-hmm. be the healthy eater. And they don't feel a ton of permission to just eat whatever they want. They put on that good, that false food front, and then they go home and they have what they want and end up in this backlash stuff. And it's because they're in the school that talks a lot about nutrition and just really sets sets up the orthorexia. Yeah. And especially when you're training or when you have a career staked on something like that, it feels very like the stakes are high. You know, it feels hard to to rock the boat. And I have some people who listen to the podcast who have careers in this sort of field, like naturopathic, or it's like they are literally making their living on something that is creating an orthorexic sort of attitude in them. And it's a really hard thing to navigate, I think, to live in line with your values or to realize that what you're doing for work and something that you've invested time and money in is not in line with your values or is actually not helping you have a healthy relationship with food or with yourself. Like that's a, that's a really tough transition. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and in dietetic school, you know, I remember fellow students that sucked down six Diet Cokes in class and didn't eat. Right. Me too. I definitely could sort of spot them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They didn't have good color their faces weren't bright and alive. They they looked down and yeah. there wasn't this glow. And yeah, a lot of people, draws a lot of people to the field is 
I want to learn everything I can about calories, right? Oh, yes. I mean, for me too, like I was because I had an eating disorder and then disordered eating through most of my 20s. And when I went back to school, I was mostly recovered, but I also was looking for that last magic bullet. It was like the last gasp, the one diet maybe that would, you know, quote, fix me. So I had mostly accepted my body, but I was like, well, if I go to school for nutrition, I'll probably lose weight and that's good, you know? And it wasn't, you know, thankfully somewhere along the way in my program, I discovered the concept of intuitive eating and was also in a place in my therapy where that idea resonated. And I was doing a lot of work on self-compassion and mindfulness and the underlying issues that had sort of caused the eating disorder in the first place. So it all came together nicely, but there were some very triggering moments for sure in the the studying to become a dietitian. So mm-hmm. I feel lucky that I, I got out of that. <laughs> right. And we can go into that field without that history and and come out of it with it. Uh-huh. Yep. So yeah, how I'm curious because I know in some of the bios I've read of you and stuff you said that you did kind of start out in the weight management field like so many of us in dietetics because that's just sort of what's available or what is kind of the general approach to dietetics. So I'm curious how that was for you and then how you made the transition to health at every size and intuitive eating. Yeah. Well, you know, I did very traditional schooling and and dietetic association accredited program. Mm -hmm. I was really into whole foods and aware of organic and just looking at the quality of food and ingredients and didn't want to eat a lot of food with preservatives and things like that. And so, and, you know, dietetic school in the nineties was, it wasn't really whole foods based. But here up in Washington here on the in the Pacific Northwest had a nutrition program that I was very drawn to, but it wasn't accredited at the time. And I felt like, and I had a teacher I really respected that said, get your credentials, just put your head down, do your work, and then you can do what you want. You can advocate for the kind of nutrition you believe in later, but you know, it was very, you know, the dietetic school is very grounded in the food groups and food pyramid came out and dietary guidelines for Americans. And so I always knew I wasn't going to be the traditional dietitian working in a hospital. And, but I really didn't know what I was going to do. So I just put my head down and, and did the work and got my degrees. And then I moved out to Oregon and needed a job and at the time, I thought I might go back to naturopathic school to become a naturopathic doctor, which I just kind of go, wow, I'm so glad I didn't follow that. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, you know, that's a lot of time and money and education. I just didn't know if I could do it. I was so burnt out after grad school. Oh, I hear you. <laughs> I said, you know what, job and just work for a while and maybe your path will present itself to you, you know. So I got a job in research working in the traditional weight paradigm on studies with the DASH diet, dietary approaches to stopping hypertension, which is a high fruit and vegetable diet. And I was a health research interventionist. If you could see me, I'm putting it in bunny ears, right? (laughs) But I led groups and did individual visits with participants in the clinical trials that I was working on. And they had a focus on blood pressure and lowering blood pressure. And they had, you know, a weight loss recommendation of pounds. 
which, of course, everyone that participated in the studies wanted to lose way more than pounds. Mm. But they wanted this modest drop in weight because it was believed it was needed to drop blood pressure. So, And, you know, I worked with in a group that none of us, we all knew dieting didn't work. And none of us believed we were promoting dieting. Oh, yes. <laughs> we believed we were promoting healthy lifestyles, right? Dieting doesn't work. We're not dieting here. But, you know, when you come in every week, we're going to weigh you and see if you've lost weight. We're going to ask you to track your calories obsessively. We're going to ask you to exercise according to our guidelines and recommendations and not according to what your body wants to do. And when you looked at people's food records or, or even talked to them, you know, in retrospect, they were dieting. We could call it whatever the hell we wanted. They were dieting. And, you know, the, this research, they'd been using the six-month intervention for, I don't know, probably 20 years. And, you know, it worked. And if you could see me, I'm putting that in bunny quotes. It worked, right? weight on the program. It worked. But of course, at two years, they were back up to their starting weight or higher, heavier weight. And so I started to wonder why we were focused on weight when we could just be promoting healthy behaviors and the body's going to sort it out. I just thought, why don't we just focus on self-care and trust the body to sort it out. And they said, oh, that'll never work. And they didn't think people would ever participate in something like that. It's funny. I've been doing this for 10 years and I have thousands of people on our mailing list come through our courses and we don't ever promise weight loss, promote weight loss. You'll see no weight loss language from us. And people want it. It's, yeah. And people still come to us wanting it, right? So we're mm -hmm. not going to conclude with them by saying, you know, you probably will lose weight. Right. And so I started to feel unethical and I started to want to work with people. And I'm also a yoga teacher and I was really curious about the mindfulness and self-acceptance practices of yoga and how they intersect with body image and body acceptance and self-acceptance. And, and I was also really aware that people's lives were what got in the way of them. Well, it's, we were asking them, I think, really to do things that were very unsustainable one. And then lives, people's lives are what gets in the way of their plans, because the plans that we make to change the size and shape of our body are not flexible enough to deal with what life throws at us. And so I just wanted to offer something different. And I, I basically knew that nobody was going to hire me. I'm not going to find a job. That said, looking for a dietitian who wants to incorporate mindfulness and self acceptance practices with food and body image and weight. <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided to start my own practice. And it was shortly after I started my practice that I discovered that this community of providers and this movement called Health at Every Size. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. I'm not crazy. And then I discovered intuitive eating. And in the book, Intuitive Eating, they have this chart that shows the dieting mind compared to the non-dieting mind and the non-diet mentality. And when I looked at that mentality, those two mentalities, I thought, oh, here it is right here. People in the research studies were dieting. They were on this side of the chart. They were not on this side of the chart. No wonder it didn't work. So now we have all these people. I was just at Kripalu yoga center in Massachusetts, and they have this integrative weight loss program. Once again, I'm using bunny ears. And there's some decent things in the program, but it's they're promising weight loss. It's rooted in the dieting mind. They recommend that they 
people keep food records. They're basically just colluding with the dieting mind, but they think they're they're promoting healthy lifestyle change and not dieting. Mm. I think we see this with mindful eating a lot. Is they're promoting mindful eating as a path to weight loss. Well, if you're using anything as a path to weight loss, your clients are dieting. You can call it whatever the hell you want. Yep. <laughs> People are indoctrinated into dieting culture. And the only way we move away from diet culture is to put thoughts about weight on the back burner. Absolutely. It's not possible to heal relationship with food and body while, while trying to control the size and shape of our body. And yeah, you can use as much self-compassion and as much mindfulness as you want. That's the latest thing that's really gotten under my skin is the self-compassion diet because it's like, once again, using something that is a really powerful tool for body acceptance and body positivity in the service of weight loss, which is, it's not meant for that. And mm-hmm. weight loss, you know, anything that you treat as a diet will not work as diets don't both for, I mean, it's not going to produce the weight loss that you seek, but it's also not going to heal your relationship with food. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, something, I just heard the title of Jean Christeller's new book, mm. which I'm not able to say it verbatim, but she's a mindful eating person. Yeah. And it's like the joy of eating half a cookie. Oof. God, no. That's going to be on the shelves, the joy of eating half a cookie or something. It's something like that. You know, and we just, what drives me crazy is how people don't see how we hold up restriction while pathologizing overeating. Mm Mm-hmm right? Like having four cookies, you know, how about mindfully eating four cookies or a bag of cookies? Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Why is that not the title? The joy of eating a bag of cookies. Yeah. Like the joy. It's. Oh, I know. I was in a workshop, this, a retreat with Tara Brock and this weekend. I love her. Me too. And yet, you know, she talks about over consuming. Mm-hmm. And she uses it more broadly, like over consuming. So she's talking about shopping and, yeah. you know, the ways we over consume. She didn't specifically talk about food, although I'm sure everyone in the room, 300 people immediately thought about food and overeating. The first, they didn't probably immediately think about overspending. Right. And I listened to her podcast and she does bring that up a lot. And my mind always goes there too, you know? Yeah, And I know she has a history of binge eating. So I think that might be where her mind goes, you know, in regards to food. Right. And instead of, you know, talking about how restriction is also part of suffering. Right. And how restriction sets us up for overeating. Yeah. And so when she just talks about the overconsuming, when it comes to food, you know, so oftentimes the overconsuming is a byproduct of the restriction and the restricting mindset. And whether you can follow your restriction or not, the fact that you think you should be restricting your food is going to lead to overeating, which probably circles back around to my thing with these carnation breakfast bars, thinking at night I shouldn't eat anything tomorrow and then eating three carnation breakfast bars in the corner of my room, hoping no one would find me. Right. That's sort of last supper mentality. Yeah. I never followed my restrictive thinking, but because I thought I should be restricting, I was doing this other thing. That's so powerful to think about too, because I also hear a lot of people say, well, I don't diet. I don't believe in diets, but they are 
doing, you know, they're colluding with or participating in the diet mentality in some way. And that way might be as subtle as just thinking they should be dieting or thinking they should be engaging in healthy lifestyle change, you know, and not even actually doing it, but feeling that they should and therefore setting themselves up for that sort of deprivation-based eating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just at this yoga center and you walk into this cafeteria and it's just this, this huge spread of food. I mean, there's so many choices. There's a sandwich bar and there's this little bar with all this Ayurvedic inspired food and there's kitchery and there's always peanut butter and jelly. And then they have a salad bar and they have always have a soup and then they always have some hot entrees. So you have a million, all these choices. And on Wednesday and Saturday nights there, they have dessert. And it's just always interesting when I get to the end of the line and see the dessert, what people are saying. Of course, like many people like take the piece of dessert right away because there might, if I wait, there might not be any. Well, Kripalu never runs out of food. They have more food. So I never take the dessert with my plate of food. Like I'm like, oh, I'll come back if I want it, you know? And then people, oh, I shouldn't have had that. Or, oh, it's good. It's It's got coconut sugar. This one's <laughs> coconut sugar and it's gluten-free and just the dialogue in this place nobody sees it as part of diet culture everyone thinks that they're doing the right thing i'm not sitting there going oh you know should i have it i'm like yeah it looks kind of good i'm gonna come back and see if i want it <laughs> it's so funny because that's taking me back i haven't been to Kripalu for like five years probably and i'm actually coming for your your be nourished provider retreat which i'm so excited about but the last time I was there, I was still in this sort of restrictive mindset with food. I wasn't, you know, fully disordered, but I, you know, I was still living within the diet mentality. And I remember thinking those things about the food, like, oh, I'm being so good, or this is so good, and so, you know, so healthy. And then going to the little cafe they have, they have like a coffee shop where you can like sit and get internet and do work and stuff. So I remember going down there to do some writing and buying a, a big chocolate bar and just eating the whole thing after my sort of quote unquote clean lunch or whatever, just like wolfing down this chocolate bar and then being horrified with myself like, oh my God, I've just undone all this, you know, healthy eating that I've been doing, not recognizing like, hey, you know, you've been so fixated on the perceived cleanness of this food or also trying to not eat too much in front of other people and sort of being socially acceptable, blah, 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 that like, of course, I set myself up to want to eat this whole chocolate bar in one sitting because I was hungry and deprived, you know? So mm -hmm. it's really interesting. I'm, I'm excited to go back in a very different state of mind. Yeah, yeah. Every time I go, it's changed. So I imagine it's it'll have changed quite a bit from the time you were there. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm excited. I went to a macrobiotic place recently with a friend of mine who like was coming in from out of town. And this was a place that she used to go to as a kid that she really loved when she visited New York. So we went there and I ordered this macro plate that was kind of their specialty. And it was delicious, but sort of filling in that way that like, things with a lot of vegetables and a lot of fiber are filling didn't really satisfy me. It was just, I just felt sort of stomach full. And then I got home and I was like, I'm still hungry. I'm going to have a snack. And I ate like some chips or something, you know? And I was like, gosh, you know, this, it's so 
amazing to be in a relationship with food now where like that is okay and where feeling justified and still being hungry and still wanting something to sort of satisfy me feels mm-hmm. very normal and easy when, you know, five, 10 years ago, it would have been like this horrifying thing. Yeah. Well, the difference it is to be satisfied versus full. They're not the same thing. Exactly. Feeling full, but not at all satisfied and left wanting. And you can walk away feeling really satisfied, like, damn it, that was good. And not pr- maybe particularly full. Like, right. Satisfied, right? Yeah, it's so amazing. At the end of the Tara Brock retreat, she had to sit with people and your partner, you sit with a partner and they said, tell me something you love. And I, you would say it and then they'd say, thank you. And then tell me something else you love and you'd share and thank you. And tell me something else you love, and, you know, went for like two minutes and then we switched. And one of the things I said is, I didn't say I love mashed potatoes. I didn't say specific foods, but I said, I love when I eat a meal and I'm like, God damn it. That was good. Yes. That <laughs> satisfaction, that t- like complete satisfaction with a, a meal. So yeah. And it wasn't, it's not tied to a specific food. You know, I, I didn't really say, Oh, I love this and I love chocolate and I love, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> apples in October when they're in season. And, you know, I was, it was just like the meat, you know, a meal that's satisfying and that satisfaction comes from who I'm with, where I am, the taste of the food. It's, how hungry I was when I went there. Yeah, it's not. It's a context-dependent sort of thing. It's it's all of it. Mm-hmm. But you might get this, like when you ask your clients, what do you love to eat? They're like, I don't know. Or do you like what you're eating? Well, what the hell does that have to do with it? Yeah. Like a lot. And I'm like, I want you this week to just notice if you like what you're eating or are you being a martyr? Does it taste good? Do you like it? Does it taste as good as you thought it was going to be, right? Yeah, that's a great question. Was the expectation the best part of it? So you get this dessert at the end of the Kripalu line. It maybe looks really great. Yeah, oh my God, it sounds amazing. And then you take it and you take a bite and it's like, meh. Or you take a bite and go, mmm, whoa, that's really good. So that presence of being able to say, do I like it? You know, but if you're, if you restrain yourself from sweets, you're, that's not going to be your experience of their dessert at all. Right. Regardless of if you like it or not, and maybe go back for seconds because Lord knows when you last had dessert. So true. Yeah. That the quality and flavor of it has nothing to do with it at that point. It's just the reaction to deprivation and probably the reaction to hunger as well. Mm Mm-hmm like wanting the sugar to get your blood sugar up sometimes. Yeah. And the minute you're told what to do, or you think there's something you should do is, is the minute you're going to want to do the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) So true. It's just human nature. Yeah. We don't like rules and restrictions actually. No, we want a sense of autonomy and freedom. It's a very healthy thing that we want that. But human beings have this strong need to tell people what to do Human beings also have just as strong of a need to reject what people tell them to do. Right. To create a sense of autonomy. Yeah. Whether it's with food or anything. That's why this kind of change is so hard because it's like, how do you shepherd someone through that undoing diet culture and figuring out what works for them without telling them what to do, which oftentimes, you know, I get people saying, well, 
this intuitive eating stuff is great, but like while I'm learning the principles, like what should I actually be eating, you know? And I usually don't answer that because, <laughs> and I usually sort of use that to explore what it means to them to have rules and guidelines and to be sort of afraid of their own autonomy. Because I think it's, it's like if I were to say, well, you know, eat this, this, and this, I think, you know, once you're sort of working through a lot of the diet mentality and letting go of rules and restrictions, then talking about nutrition can be useful. And talking about creating a balanced meal and something that's going to satisfy you can be done from a place of self-care and pleasure. But if you're coming into it with all these, you know, with the diet mentality, it's like, that's not really going to do you any good for me to say, well, here's what a balanced meal could look like for you, or here's like an appropriate snack. You know, it's like, that's not going to necessarily support this person's sense of autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, when you read the intuitive eating book, the chapter on nutrition is in the back of the book for a reason. Yes. (laughs) I say, when you get to that chapter, stop reading and go back to the front (laughs) again. Because if you read that chapter too early on, it's going to be really hard for that nutrition voice to be an ally instead of an opponent, right? It's just a critical voice. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like you're going to should yourself using that knowledge the same way you've shoulded yourself with all this diet mentality stuff or all this fad diet knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot to undo all of that. I mean, I really love this idea of undoing. I I just read this book, The Dance of a Dissident Daughter mm. by Swamp Kid. And she talks about your unteachers. She says, who are your unteachers? And I thought, whoa. <laughs> I think in some ways, when you are moving towards a more weight-inclusive paradigm and health, you know, embracing size acceptance and working on intuitive eating, you have probably more to unlearn than you do to learn. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought, I think we're more unteachers here at Be Nourished than we are teachers. Well, that's a perfect segue into sharing with people where they can find you. Cause I think you guys are such great unteachers and have great resources, especially for people who are doing this work, like medical professionals or health coaches or psychotherapists or whatever, I think can really benefit from the work you guys are doing. Yeah. So I'm a dietitian, although I call myself a nutrition therapist because I think most people are terrified of dietitians. And my business partner is a licensed professional counselor. And we're located in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon. But our website is benourished.org, the active phrase benourished.org. And we offer courses and programs and retreats and workshops, both for the general public, for people who are personally pursuing this and also for healthcare providers and helping professionals. We have a six-week e-course called No More Waiting. We have a 30-day e-course for providers called Promoting Body Trust and Clinical Practice, which is a great way to learn a little bit more about how to do this work if you're a helping professional. And we just are launching a certification program for providers to become certified body trust providers. We do retreats around the country. We hope to do more and more around the country. So there's lots of ways you can work with us. And I think one thing I'll maybe leave with is we have, if you sign up for our newsletter on the footer of any page of our website, we have a 12-page downloadable workbook that's free. That's an opportunity for you to just explore this work a bit more. We'll 
and we ask you questions and have you kind of walk through your life and how you came to have this relationship with food and body. It can be a really great way to explore this work. And then if you want to know more, there's ways, there's programs and things you can look into. Oh, awesome. I will link to all of that in the show notes so that people can find it easily. Definitely recommend people check that out. And thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It was really fun. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest for being here and to you guys for listening. We'll be back again with another brand new episode. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Android or whatever your favorite podcast app is if you haven't done so already. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch with you online. The best way is by email. So if you join my email VIP list, you'll get exclusive tips about intuitive eating and body positivity and updates about all my work as well as new episodes of the podcast. So if you go to christyharrison.com slash email, you can sign up there. That's christyharrison.com slash email. And I would love to have you guys all on my VIP list. And then you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Food Psych on Facebook and Food Psych Pod on Twitter. I am also on Instagram, just me this time. I don't have a separate account for the podcast, but I'm on Instagram at Christy Harrison and the first I is a one. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched.